Hello, I'm Adam Williams, and this is the Humanity Podcast. Today I'm talking with James McRae, who is a poet, a meme artist, and the author of the book, Shit Your Ego Says. This conversation, it's one of ego and karma, existential crisis and ayahuasca, and poetry and meme artistry, which James is convinced is the most potent and powerful art form of our times. In fact, he has a new book coming out through Thought Catalog later this year, and it just might be the first in the world to combine poetry and meme art in the way that he does. So we talk about that and just all the things, the stories that weave along James's road from an idyllic childhood in tiny town, Minnesota, to getting washed out of New York City on his first attempt to live there, and then seeking refuge on the Puerto Rican island of Culebra. We talk about James's dark night of the soul experience while on Culebra, a sort of existential crisis and how it was pivotal to his spiritual and creative voice, the one that he's publicly known for now. And as always, show notes and links where you can find James's website and social media pages and learn more, they're at Humanitude.com. So, okay, um, here we are, and here we go. My conversation with James McRae. Hey, James, welcome to Humanitude. Hey, what's up, Adam? Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to. I'm glad we can connect like this. Uh, you know, I follow you on Instagram. I've read a, an amount of your work, and I, I just love your perspective on a lot of things. So this is really cool for me that we get a chance to talk and dig in a little bit more. And I think that we're going to get into some of that deep stuff here soon enough. I want to just start then. Let's start at the start. Let's start with the easier stuff. We have a, a point in common. We both grew up in small towns in the Midwest. For me, that was Missouri. For that, for you, it was Minnesota. I'd love to get your perspective on what that was like to grow up wherever you did in a small town. Was that something you saw as idyllic? Was it something you saw as confining where that's what sent you out into the bigger world? Paint that picture for us. Yeah. I, I guess at the time I, I didn't have anything to compare it to, right? I didn't travel much as a kid I mean, we traveled more locally, so I didn't get exposed to a lot of big cities, you know, other than Minneapolis. So I really just didn't know what else life might be. I didn't know what, you know, living in a city might look like. So it was all very normal. And, you know, it was not, it was not boring because I had so like, like the the town that I grew up in was like a couple hundred people. Oh wow! I mean, it was a it was adjacent to a a town that was a little bit bigger that had like five thousand people, and 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 I think now it's officially one town because they're very close, but it was kind of a little tucked away section of this other town that. It, it so it felt like a town of a few hundred people. It it, it, it actually it, it literally was. I, I, ironically, it, in that tiny little town of a few hundred people, was where the huge um, company known as Sears was started. Huh. <laughs> ironically, <laughs> um, so great things can come from very little place, very small places. And um, so, it, you know, growing up in a town of a couple hundred people might be 
you know, boring, but even though it was so small, I had so, there were so many friends and kids my age that were around. So we were always just playing. We were exploring. We lived next to the railroad tracks and we used to spend, you know, weekends just wandering down the railroad tracks. And it it felt like we were on some epic adventure with all these neighborhood kids. (laughs) So Looking back, it was very idyllic. It was a place you could live without, you know, fear of your safety. Um, There was no parental like restrictions in terms of like where we could go or, you know, how late we could be out on our own because it was just free. So we, we, we ran around, we played, we got, you know, we explored, we, you know, um, wandered around in the woods. (laughs) And, um, and I think because there were so many kids my age and so we, we, we made it a lot of fun. And and I think what it really did was it, 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 it put me in touch with my imagination because you make your own fun. You know, we, we would create fake clubs and we would create fake adventures and, you know, we had all the space for our, both our bodies and our imaginations to roam. So right now, you know, I'm very much kind of like a daydreamer. And um, I think that, that the daydreamer in me was cultivated at a, at a very young age. So I'm very just kind of like normal in that space. I grew up in a town around the size of that bigger part that was near you. So it was well over 5,000 people. And for me, the city was Kansas City because that's where my family largely had come from. That's where my older brothers later would move to. And while we did take some vacations, road trip vacations as a family, and when I was a kid, the city, Kansas City, was kind of in a way the edge of the world for me. It was what I saw as where my future was. And you would end up moving to Minneapolis, right? You would end up starting a career and having life for a while there, right? Did you see it in that same way where that was, that was the city that was the big faster pace sort of, this is where I move with my life when I'm grown up, you know, as a kid, you think when I'm grown up, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I, I, I don't remember ever once either as a kid or even now, like projecting an idea of what my future might be, be like. Okay. I never thought I'm going to move to Minneapolis. I never thought I'm going to move to New York City. I never thought I'm going to move to Los Angeles. I never thought I'm going to stay here. I don't remember ever having any plan or or just like picturing myself in any particular place. I've just always kind of just like gone where the wind takes me without being too much of trying to micromanage or or um project some idea of what I wanted. So I never thought um I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to move to Minneapolis. Okay. Um, until I did, but yeah, Minneapolis was definitely the city. I my 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 first memories of it was probably going to like, like, like baseball games or football games. We would go to like professional sporting events up in Minneapolis. So that was kind of like the big outing. It was like, oh, we're going to a Minnesota Twins game right or we're going to a minnesota vikings game and that was like the big the big outing and um or or the mall of america 
which was <laughs> and is, you know, the, I think it, I don't know if it's still the biggest mall in the world, but it was for a very long time. So those were kind of like the big places to go. And, um, you know, it turns out that Minneapolis is a tremendous city with all kinds of nooks and crannies and culture and subcultures, um, as is Kansas City, I'm sure. So once you actually live there, it, um, you find so many hidden treasures you didn't even realize were there. Yeah, yeah. So you did go to Minneapolis, like we've said, but then there was a time, we're going to jump ahead here to a time when you left and you did go to New York City. And I'm wondering what drew you to there then ultimately, what what it was about that that was alluring, maybe what was going on in your life at the time in Minneapolis that it, it might have factored into that. Like what what was that transition? Why? How? You know, I always I guess, you know, I, I, I just said that I never really planned ahead or thought about where I might live or what my life might be like. But I did always have a in the back of my head, an, an idea of living in New York City. Not a plan necessarily, like I, I need to do this and this and this and then go to New York City, but I always just kind of had a sense of being there or wanting to be there. And I think it was primarily through different writers and artists that I had encountered who had spent time in New York. I remember there was a book that I stumbled across in high school at a random bookstore called NYC Babylon. And I picked it up because I thought the title was intriguing. It was like, oh, they're making a comparison between this new modern city of New York City and this ancient land of Babylon. And that, 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 that for some reason, as, 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 a, as a kid, that juxtaposition like struck me. So I, so I bought the book without knowing what it was. And it turns out that it was a really, really cool book about the connection between the, the beat um, writers of the 19, like 40s and 50s, like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs, a connection between them and the punk rock movement of the 70s. And both the beat movement and the punk movement in the in the United States happened in, in New York. So it was a very New York centric book about art and culture all the way from the beats and their influence into the punk movement. And that book really changed my life because I really saw like because I had been, you know, interested in in art and writing and poetry but my exposure to it up to that point had just been a little bit more of a a little more of an older like idea of what art and poetry might be, whether that's like Edgar Allan Poe or like Picasso okay. or something like that. But then suddenly I had this exposure to this really kind of like modern and edgy like form of writing and poetry and art that really like blew my mind open. And that was all revolving around New York City. So I always kind of had this like feeling of like, I should move to New York City. I, I want to live in New York City. And for various reasons, it, it took it took a while to happen. But I always kind of, again, I always kind of thought that in the back of my mind that I wanted to be there. So when the timing was right and like the stars were aligned, it just happened very naturally. Yeah, the beats, I think. Well, and, and so many artists, 
right? I mean, I think of Basquiat and Warhol and all these people who end up either, if they're not from New York, they end up there. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's so prominent in their stories and in their work. And for me as a kid, like I said, in a small town out in the middle of the country, the movies of the 80s in particular factored into that. You know, I'm out where it's considered flyover land. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of exciting stuff. And so many TV shows and movies were set in places like New York and L.A. So that got my attention. And I figured one day I would want to live in New York. And whatever time I should have done it, if there was a should, it's past. I've never lived there. And now I'm past the idea of wanting to live there. Um, you do end up going there. The stars align. You move to New York and it comes kind of crashing down through no fault of your own. Tell us that story. Yeah. Well, I did, I did, I did end up living there for, 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 for a while. I lived there for eight years, but there was a, um, yeah, there, there was a hiccup in, in transitioning there, which was, I moved there in 2012 and, you know, when I moved there, it was very much a leap of faith. Like I didn't have a job or I didn't, you know, have a lot of money saved up. I didn't have a big friend network. And, um, so I was, I was crashing with friends. I was applying for every kind of marketing job that I could find. And it's, you know, as anyone will tell you in the move to New York, um, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a rude awakening. It's a bit of a, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, friction to kind of assimilate, assimilate to that culture. And that's why it spits a lot of people out when they try to move there. A lot of people go there and they get spit out. It, it, it just doesn't work out. It takes a lot of like, just determination and conviction to stay, you know, unless you're set up to really make it work. So my like trials and tribulations uh, first came about through um, the Hurricane Sandy, which hit the <clears throat> the city a few months after I had arrived. And I had just signed a lease to my first apartment. And um, like I was literally going to move in like in like two days. And then Hurricane Sandy uh, hit like totally unexpectedly. There's never really been a hurricane to hit New York City before, um, at least not nearly at that scale. So the whole no one was prepared and no one expected it. And even like the day before, we're like, oh, I heard it's going to storm. Nobody knew the extent of what was about to happen. And the apartment that I was had just signed a lease for was totally destroyed in the hurricane. And I was already in a place where I didn't have a job. I was running out of money and suddenly I was effectively homeless as well. And, you know, that's when everything kind of started to spiral. It's like, well, what do I do now? Like, where do I go? Like, I don't even have enough money, you know, to, to stay here much longer. And my apartment's underwater. <laughs> and, uh, I ended up my my friend who I was going to be living with. Um, so we were both kind of out of our home. He knew someone that had a empty cottage in this small island in the Caribbean called Culebra, and he's like, "Let's just go stay there." And I'm like, "Well, why not? Like, I've got 
nowhere else to go. So we ended up leaving New York and taking a one-way JetBlue flight to Puerto Rico and then transferring to this little rinky-dink two-passenger <laughs> plane that took us to this little, very small, very uninhabited island called Culebra, where I proceeded to have an existential crisis. I actually have been to Culebra. My wife, Becca, and I have been there. And when we flew out on this little plane, they had like a 10-year-old boy or something up in the seat next to the pilot. And I'm all the way in the back because they're choosing the seating for us based on weight, body weight, things like that. They're trying to balance out the plane. And I was trying to just be chill about if something happens, if if the pilot has a, a heart attack or something, it's a 10-year-old boy who is sitting next to this person who has to make the call for all of us because there's no room for any of us to move and do anything. But, okay, you end up going to Culebra. A question that comes to my mind for that is, I mean, you, you just said how it ended up happening, but I'm wondering if this was some of that adventurous sort of spirit to say, all right, I'll just keep moving forward, as opposed to the idea of going back to Minnesota or somewhere else, but it seems like, I mean, would that have felt like a failure to go back to Minnesota and say, man, I tried New York and it clearly wasn't meant to be right now? Yeah, it didn't seem like an option for me. I don't think I even considered it. Like that would have been the easiest thing to do, right? It's like, okay, like that sucks. I, I, I'm, I don't have a place to live. I, I better just like maybe go back to Minnesota and save some money or, or whatever. And I just couldn't bring myself to do that. I don't know. I think I was in such a suspended state of, you know, magical thinking because I had already just kind of like left my life behind and gave away all my things and, you know, quit my job to move to New York. So I was in this kind of state of, you know, non-attachment, just openness. Um, yeah, to a, to a degree, a sense of adventure and just like willingness to go you know, wherever. So, yeah. So I, I just kind of said yes to the path that opened itself, which was moving to this little island. And uh, I just, you know, it, it's, I, I try to make decisions as from the gut as spontaneously as I can. You know, certainly some things need to be deliberated and kind of considered in more detail. But whenever it's applicable, I try to just follow the open road and where my heart wants to go. And my heart wanted to keep going or, you know, not retreat back to where I came from, but to like allow myself to continue to just broaden my horizons. On Culebra, you enter what you've described as an existential crisis. This is where you're facing yourself you've already gone through some months of significant changes, you know, a transition and what that must've felt like to leave behind whatever had been your life in Minnesota and, and in Minneapolis, you go to New York, you're going through all these things, right? I imagine that's an up and down sort of excitement, but also you're trying to get it all together and then it gets seriously turned upside down. So what is this existential crisis that, that you mentioned in Culebra? What, what are you facing there? How do you face it? I guess it was the first time in my life where I was just facing complete and utter uncertainty. You know, I had been, you know, I've, I had faced uncertainty. You know, I had been, you know, fired from jobs and things like that where I didn't know quite what was going to happen. But I always, you know, for the most part, had a life that was more or less known. 
you know, you go to work, you do this, you do that, you hang out with friends, everything's pretty much set up and running on autopilot more or less. And then moving to New York was already throwing myself into a place of uncertainty where I didn't know what was going to happen next. And then losing my apartment and then ending up on this little island what with 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 no income, with no job, with no savings, with no even idea of when or how I would get back to New York, if ever, or where I would go from there. So I was in a pla- place of, I mean, I joke when I say ex- existential crisis, because it, 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 it was that, but it was also a place of just complete, almost needing to go to a place of complete um, surrender and acceptance and trust. Because if I didn't find that surrender and acceptance and trust within myself, then I probably would have been panicking, right? Because I it didn't it didn't look good. <laughs> it didn't didn't look good on the surface. But I think I was I had no choice but to unless I unless I was going to freak out and panic, I had no choice but to find a place of kind of like that inner stability within myself that's based on, you know, spirit more than tangible physical evidence and just allow my, it's, it's almost like when you hit rock bottom and you have no choice, but to just surrender, surrender the ego's need to control the situation and just almost ask for help. In my case, it was just asking, asking for help from the universe just to give me a way out of this. So um, it was a bit of an existential crisis that really led me to a place of surrender and acceptance, which I think was the lesson of, you know, why I was there in the first place. Did you have spiritual practices for that already where you know, was there influence? If we go back to your childhood and things, were, was your family that way? Were they people who kind of taught you at all in preparation for this kind of moment in your life? Or was this just a full force you had no choice because you hit that that sort of rock bottom, so to speak, of of an experience where you had no choice but to face yourself and figure out what to do? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. Um, we, growing up, like most people in the Midwest, it was, it was a very, um, you know, Christian house. So I always had a belief in a higher power. Um, I, I never really questioned that, you know, I, I, I didn't quite buy into the higher power narrative of the, you know, Christian, you know, church, but I did, I, I didn't, I didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. In other words, just because a lot of people who grew up in Christian, um, or, you know, very religious, um, upbringings or, you know, dogmatic or fundamentalist upbringings, they might end up abandoning the whole idea of God because they didn't, um, end up believing in the exact, you know, picture of God that was given to them through dogma or religion or fundamentalism. Right. So 
I was able to kind of extract the belief in the higher power and the trust in the higher power from the dogma and, you know, just like strictness of religion itself. So, so I did always have that belief, but I was never really needed to test it, test my faith or test, um, that, that trust that there is a higher power in the universe. So it was both going into that situation with a bit of a foundation of faith, but never before having to really like rely on it. So it was, it was a little bit of both. When you were in that position then of facing this need for surrender, for acceptance, I don't know how long you were on Culebra. What over this, whatever that period of time was, what was that process like for you? And was there a particular moment of clarity? Because I look at this experience for you and so much that has happened in your life since. You you are a writer, you are a poet, you are all these things and, and somewhat of a public figure in that as well. And it seems like something solidified possibly. I don't want to put this on you, so please clarify, but it seems like something really solidified in that moment that it was a very pivotal sort of experience to be there and face this lesson. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was. And, you know, I I have to give a lot of credit to my friend, Jake, who I was on the Island with, who, you know, who, who brought us there. Um, Jake is, you know, he's, he's, he's a good friend and he is, um, he's a bit of a teacher, um, for me as well. You know, even though he's, he's younger than me, he's just someone who's just kind of like materialized into my life randomly. And, um, at the time, you know, really was a guide in helping me kind of, um, grapple with uncertainty. So having him around and seeing how he faced it was very inspiring and helped me get through it. And, you know, I remember him talking about how when you reach a point of uncertainty, the natural reaction is to resist or avoid that place of uncertainty and and try to find some semblance of certainty to cling to. And Jake helped me to lean into the uncertainty as opposed to resisting it or avoiding it. Just actually, how much can you lean into a place of uncertainty and and embrace it? And that was a new idea for me. So it's almost like, you know, he, he was a little bit of a guardian angel kind of whispering in my ear at that time to guide me through the process. Um, so that was very helpful. And it was pivotal in the sense that I always wanted to be a writer and I always wanted to write a, you know, a book or books. And it just turns out that the experience of being in Culebra and having this kind of crisis and, and finding this new sense of like surrender and acceptance and trust of the universe and to kind of make a transition from being stuck in your own ego to expanding your your mind and your consciousness to be more heart centered and being more just in tune with the larger 
universe as opposed to the your own isolated you know ego that transition ended up becoming the foundation for my first book which is called shit your ego says and it's about a lot of things there's a lot of stories in there but it it, it begins with me kind of shipwrecked on this island and and having this crisis and and the lessons that I that I took from it so it was it was foundational in that it gave me a bit of a a dark night of the soul that gave me the gift of this book that ended up being published and kind of starting off my career as a writer you've described the ego as what I'll say, I think is a double-edged kind of sword. I don't know if you use that exact term, but the fact that it's a real thing and not necessarily a bad thing because of things like where we, we can use it to help us take care of some of those, uh, I think base needs and then really though, allow that space for higher self and these practices and this recognition of surrendering and leaning into uncertain, like all these things that come into letting go of that ego and not just being so clingy with it and letting that run the entire show. Um, you know, these are, these are ideas and practices that I am familiar with because of time that I have spent with practices like yoga and studying Buddhism and things like that. But I'm wondering how you would explain these abstract sorts of ideas of ego and higher self and that the ego and the, what it tells us is not absolute. How do you describe that to someone who is maybe not practiced or has maybe never even heard of such ideas? Do you, do you have a, a grasp on that at this point that you share with people? Yeah. Um, because I get asked questions about the ego a lot and, you know, one thing I've learned, I don't, um, I don't talk about the ego much anymore because one thing I've realized is that it's such a abstract concept that everyone has their own definition of what it is. There's no, there's no, there's no um, agreed upon definition of, of the ego. There's, there's really not. Um, some people say it's like a bad thing that you need to, you need, you need to kill your ego and defeat your ego. And, other people say, well, no, you need to, your ego is, is, is part of you. You need to love your ego. You need to love yourself. And I think there's truth in both of those, you know, opinions. I think that ultimately, you know, we're, we're all multidimensional beings. You know, we all have, we're all multifaceted and there's lots of aspects to all of us. We contain multitudes. And the ego to me is just the part of your brain that gives you a sense of identity and kind of place in the world. So my ego is the person that identifies as being James McRae and has certain things and obligations and, you know, owns things and is attached to my possessions and it's it's the it's the part of me that gives me a sense of identity and there's nothing inherently wrong with that in fact some people need a bigger ego you know if if you are a person who maybe had faced uh, a lot of trauma growing up 
and uh, is dealing with um, problems with self-worth and don't, and, and like, doesn't believe that they're good enough for a good life and doesn't think that they're worthy and deserving and doesn't like themselves. They might need to boost up their ego because they need to like a, a, have a solid sense of identity and to love that part of themselves and love their avatar, so to speak, that, that, that they interact with the world from. So the ego is not inherently bad. And again, some people need a stronger ego. The problem with the ego is once you, um, it's very easy in our culture are like hyper-materialistic, reductive, like rigid thinking, like hyper-rational culture. It tends to glorify the ego above everything else. In other words, everything that exists is, can be reduced to, um, reason and logic and, um, it's all reductive to, to thought. It's like the world is a mental abstraction. And if the ego is the strongest voice that we have, that's impacting our beliefs and thoughts, it's going to be a very limiting life that we live because the ego is inherently based on, it's a mental construct and it doesn't leave room for a lot of, you know, um, things that can't be explained rationally. So there's nothing wrong with the ego. It's about having a healthy relationship with your ego and living from a place of, you know, what I call in the book is the higher self, which is just essentially being in touch with a broader universal consciousness. You know, I, I, like when I, when I, when I do things like creatively, I think I'm tapping into a, a higher universal consciousness. I don't know what it is. You could call it God. You could call it spirit. You could call it the collective subconscious. You could call it the higher self. You could call it the muse. There are any number of metaphors to describe what that higher intelligence is. Um, I don't claim to know what it is. I don't think anyone knows what it is, but it's there. And every time I'm being creative, I feel like I'm channeling something from that space, which is the state of kind of going beyond the ego to tap into something that is, um, that is beyond. So the, I guess the simplest way to put it is that the ego is a great passenger in like a journey but it's not a great captain. It shouldn't be running the show. It should be advising <laughs> from the passenger seat as opposed to something that you navigate your whole life with because it makes very it makes decisions based on a, a limited amount of information. Um, and I don't think life can be reduced to kind of a, a mental abstraction. In listening to that, what I'm also hearing us connected back to is the idea of uncertainty, being comfortable with uncertainty, being not, not needing to cling to things that our mind, that ego can tell us is concrete, is absolute. This is the way of the world. It's black and white, but rather being okay with this idea of faith and awareness that there is something more out there in whatever form we might practice 
or, or study that or allow for that in our lives to not have to have everything be concrete in answers so that when I create and I can say, well, this is coming from a source of, of some kind of, of energy that is not concrete. I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I believe it's there. I think that sounds like it's part of that being willing to lean into uncertainty and not feel like we have to have control of everything, every bit of information, every aspect of our lives. hundred percent. Yeah. I, th- I think that the, that's a good way to, p- to boil it down is that the ego wants to control everything. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's kind of a reactive and defensive, you know, you, some people call it like the lizard brain <laughs> where it's just, it's, it's, it, it's survival mode. And when you're on survival mode, you, you need to be able to control everything to feel a sense of security and safety. And when we run our lives from a place of survival mode, we're just not making the best, most creative decisions. That's why it's so important to like love your ego and to love yourself and love your own mind because the ego doesn't need to be defeated or killed. It just needs to be feel safe and feel like, okay, everything's okay. I don't need to control the situation. I don't need to impose my will and sense of control right now because everything's okay. So it's really more about just just loving yourself and trusting the path that you're on enough to just kind of appease the ego so it doesn't feel like everything's a constant threat and it needs to be in survival mode. Because again, when we're in survival mode, we're not making the best long-term decisions for ourselves. If we look at it in that black and white binary type of thing, you know, what you're saying has given me some thoughts. And I think that you actually posted something not long ago about this, where if we identify heavily with, um, well, let's say our spiritual practices, with how holy and superior we are in because we're so aligned with this higher self, and I don't identify with that materialism and with that ego, it still is an identification. It still is an attachment, and we're clinging to this identity of what we have. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it's, I guess it's, it's, you could call it spiritual ego or spiritual identity where, you know, people maybe, um, put on the aesthetic of spirituality or like they wear it as a, as a fashion statement, but they're maybe it like attached to that idea of themselves or that, that idea of spirituality without actually maybe living by those principles. (laughs) So there's a lot of, um, you could say spiritual ego, you know, out there and, you know, that's fine. Everyone's in their own place, but yeah, just, yeah, there's a lot of, um, (laughs) there's a lot of that out there too. I, I think this brings up for me a word that I really only recently, I don't know if it was the first time that I heard it, but the first time that it really grabbed my attention and that spiritual bypassing. And that is something that, that I think you are aware of and have talked about as well. What is your understanding of spiritual bypassing? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I, you know, I'm not an, first of all, I'm not an expert, you know, I, I've heard about it a lot and my understanding of what spiritual bypassing means is that, you know, you might, bypass your real problems like let's say that you're like there there's just stuff in your life that you haven't faced like there are 
you've got some you've got some wounding under the surface that you've never quite addressed. And spiritual bypassing would be kind of like sweeping those issues under the rug and just pretending everything's okay. Just be like close it, put, putting your hands over your ears and be like, la, 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 I can't hear you. I'm going to completely ignore my issues that are too like ugly to face. And just, I'm just going to talk about love and light and everything's okay and everything's spiritual and I don't want any bad vibes. So don't bring those <laughs> issues up to me. And um, cause you're, 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 you're using spirituality quotes to bypass the real issues that you haven't yet addressed. Yeah. That's essentially what spiritual bypassing means. And, and, and there's a lot of validity to that. And um, at the same time, I think it's become, I, I just noticed through my own social media, cause I'll post cer- certain things that are maybe just, I don't even know what, but maybe just kind of um, inspiring a, you know, something that is, you know, it, it's more aspirational, something that not, that is um, sharing at a, a, a beautiful idea about the way life could be or sometimes is. And then I, I, I started getting accused of spiritual bypassing when I, when I would post stuff like that. Like um, people would say like, well, that's, that's spiritual bypassing because it's, you're, 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 it's almost like you're portraying an idea of something that's, that's, not real. It's too beautiful to be real because the world is full of problems. And if you're saying that it's not full of problems, then you're spiritual bypassing. And I thought it was funny because I I didn't think I was doing that. So I guess I kind of got to the point where I think that some people like spiritual bypassing has become such a popular idea that people I'm not, and this is everyone's in their own place again, and that's fine. But some people are maybe attached to the to the idea of, of of not wanting to spiritually bypass, and therefore they maybe could potentially get stuck in a place of dwelling on the problems of the world or dwelling on the problems in their life, because if they were to let go of those problems, they'd be they they're afraid of spiritual spiritually bypassing. But I, I don't think that dwelling on the problems of the world or dwelling on the, you know, the, the state of politics and all the, all the bad things in the world. I don't think dwelling on them is, is a solution either. As at a certain point, we need to kind of imagine and create a better world and, and, and doing so again, as long as you're not like hiding these issues beneath the surface that you are afraid to face, as long as you're not doing that, you're, it's not spiritually bypassing to just believe in a more beautiful world and to kind of at least project that vision. I mean, especially as an artist, you know, the role of the artist is to, you know, create a image um, that people w- would want to aspire towards, not to say that it's there or that um, even the artist is in that place, but it's to create uh, almost a, a Plutonian ideal of how life could be. <laughs> and, and, and to do that is, is, is not spiritually bypassing. I'm not sure where all this comes from, but it feels like we've set up some standard behaviors throughout society. One being to be reactive, to be emotional, to be angry, 
and somehow that that shows if we're if we're outraged by what's happening right now somehow that shows that we're engaged and we're caring and we're taking action and it's like when we make worrying about something the work itself if i just worry harder yeah that'll solve it you know right. and it it's a nuanced line to to walk i think to be calm and spiritually grounded while being aware the world is in chaos it can feel like right now and a lot of people are reacting as if that's the case yeah exactly yeah i, I don't think being outraged is a strategy you know i i think that um we can only change the world by changing ourselves and the world becomes a living example of what we are all collectively projecting into the world so when we engage with the world from a place of anger and outrage, we're only fueling the fire of all the problems that we're seeing. So I'm not suggesting to ignore those problems, but I'm, I'm suggesting that we treat them with medicine as opposed to poison. And medicine is, medicine is, is peace and presence and love. And when we engage the problems in the world from a place of peace and presence and love and joy, that's healing the issues as opposed to trying to use anger to fight against the problems in the world with force, because what we fight with force only ends up fighting us back. Um, it's, it's just like the ego. You can't kill the ego with force. You need to, you need to sing it to sleep with a sweet lullaby. <laughs> So I'm suggesting to use our own words and our own presence as medicine to heal the world through love, as opposed to trying to conquer evil with force by fighting it. This brings to mind for me karma, which I think is an incredibly misunderstood, misused word and concept, at least in the society culture immediately around us here in the U.S., maybe the Western world, right? I, I think karma is treated like this immediate retribution sort of system where, uh, maybe not the best example, I, I accidentally stepped on an ant today on my walk. Now I'm going to get fired from my job. Oh, well, that was karma. I deserved it. Whereas I see it as the ripple effects of what we put into the world, like you just described. If what we put into the world is that peace, love, and joy, that's going to have a lot better ripple across how it affects others than if we're coming at it with anger and and violence uh, your your thoughts on that on on karma and uh, in that sense yeah i think i think i agree with you i i think that i see karma as being it's kind of like when there's like the dominoes are falling and karma is all the one domino hitting the next so in other words if something happens to me that's maybe unjust or that I don't like, that's one domino hitting me. And then the momentum of karma causes me to then perpetuate that karma by hitting the next thing. In other words, you're, you're being a carrier for some momentum and you get stuck in that, in that, in that loop, in that cycle of like, being reactive to things that are happening to you and 
when you're when, when you're reactive, you just unconsciously pat. It's like, it's like the kicking the dog, like like metaphor. When you know someone is um, their boss yelled at them at work, so they go home and they're upset and they kick the dog. It's like they're 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 a carrier of that virus that in the end they um, perpetuate that falling of the dominoes. So to me, in that sense, like being non-reactive is is how we extinguish that karma by 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 being still and having enough presence to absorb or not even absorb maybe maybe to deflect but just to have a have a force field around our presence that doesn't allow us to live from a place of reactivity and become a carrier of whether it's the trauma inherited from your family lineage or just like being a carrier of the all of the society's problems. Um, so I think that's similar to what you were saying about karma. Yeah. Yeah. I like that domino analogy there, that visual. So you have practiced some of these things um, that I've mentioned, yoga, Buddhism. I don't know where you are with those practices, meditation. I don't know where you are with those right now. Um, I'd like to hear about it, but I also know that you have knowledge and experience with plant medicine, and that is not something that I know a lot about. So what are your spiritual practices right now, and how does plant medicine fit into that? Yeah, uh, I don't have a lot of um, strict spiritual practices other than, other than meditation. You know, I, I, I do, I, I meditate every day, not necessarily for a long period of time, I try to once in a while, like fit like an, like an hour in just to kind of go deeper, but I meditate a little bit every day, but I mean, I've, I'm familiar with so many different things, you know, like whether I've, I've, I've practiced and, and, and studied, you know, meditation, yoga, um, specifically Kundalini yoga and, um, you know, different teachings that derive from Buddhism and, and Hinduism and, I have done kind of a bit of, you know, like strict practice uh, in, in my past that now allow me to do things a little bit more kind of casually because I've kind of, I think I've, I've just kind of integrated a lot of these practices. So in, in other words, what I'm saying is I, I don't have any strict rituals now but I have had a lot of kind of strict routines and rituals in the past that have gotten me to a place where I don't need to be rel- like super reliant on having those strict routines. Um, I've always said that creativity is a practice of mine because I think that creativity is a form of meditation. In other words, tapping into kind of a higher intelligence and kind of quieting the ego and, 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 for me, when I'm writing and creating, there's an element of listening to that where I'm kind of putting myself out of the equation and kind of trying to channel what comes. So for me, creativity is a form of spiritual practice and also a form of channeling. And that's something I do religiously every day. So so that, that counts for me as a spiritual practice, whether it's journaling or just, you know, not worrying too much about the form, but just kind of channeling to see what comes. And uh, yeah, plant medicine, um, I was kind of introduced to 
that in New York City. And it's not something that I do on a regular basis, but it has been, you know, essential to my spiritual path and growth, whether that's through um, very soft microdosing and, um, you know, doing something like that or doing more like, like larger doses in a, in a, in a ceremonial setting, you know, led by a shaman. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom to the consciousness of plants. And um, there's a lot, there's a lot that, that these plants can, can teach us about ourselves and the, and the universe. Um, so even though it's not something I do on a regular basis, it has been hugely influential for me in my life. I have not experienced ayahuasca. I've read a little bit, read some articles with that, and I've talked with some people who have uh, some experience with it. And I think it sounds like, well, I, I think I think a question I have here is I wonder if sometimes people, the broadest sense of people, use it as a shortcut perhaps that does not include the daily work of meditation or yoga or other spiritual practices, that there's that misunderstanding. And some of the, the stuff that I've read is that it's also becoming more known, more popular, and, and almost even touristic, so that now you have people who are not necessarily shamans you should be following and trusting, because now they're seeing the money in it. Uh, I can't speak too well on that. I don't want to judge one way or the other, but I do want to ask you because you have awareness of it. What do you see going on when it comes to ayahuasca and how people are using it? And and is there validity, any concern about the popularity rising to that sense of kind of a tourism for it, which then could lead to misuse? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think it's, I mean, I think that the widespread adoption of ayahuasca and other plant medicines is 100% a net positive for the world. Because again, what people are doing is they're exposing themselves to the consciousness of these plants. And these plants have a lot of wisdom. You know, the, the they call ayahuasca the grandmother plant. When you are introduced to the grandmother, you're going to learn a lot of, you're going to learn a lot of wisdom. So overall, I think the more people that are exposed to things like this, the better. And I think it's funny that we're in a place where the world is very unhealthy, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually. So I think it's very funny that these plants are becoming so popular now at a time when I think society needs them the most. And I don't, I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, there are better ways and sets and settings to do these than others, you know. Um, I've always engaged with plant medicines from a place of, you know, reverence and ceremony. And I've been lucky to be exposed to, you know, shamans that are good at what they do. Because part of what the plant medicine world, you're, there's, a, there's a few different elements. There's the, there's the plants themselves, and then there's the container in which you do them. And the, the shaman is really responsible for that container, meaning what kind of songs are, are included, what kind of music is included, what kind of smells are included, what is the overall vibe of the room? Are there five people or are there a hundred people? 
And these are all factors that help influence the situation. And there are, you're right, you're right, there are people out there doing it to make a buck. You know, there are ceremonies you can go to, even down in Peru, where people think they're going to Peru because that's where the true ceremonies happen. But there are ceremonies in Peru that are advertised on the street, uh, you know, like with a piece of paper stapled to a sign in a cafe that are just saying, hey, come on, come come Friday night for the ceremony. And there's 100 people there. And when there's 100 people there, there's no way the shaman can be attentive to all the different people in that room. Now, that doesn't mean that someone can't go to that ceremony with 100 people and be left on their own. And it doesn't mean that they can't have an amazing experience. They might have the best experience of their life, but others might not. Because if you're new to this, I mean, it's very delicate and the psyche is a, is a delicate thing. If you have a lot of trauma and stuff buried beneath that surface that you're hiding, there's a chance that you might encounter some of that you know, in, on your journey. And if that happens, are you supported in that space? And if there's a hundred people there and you're kind of left on your own, you're, you might not be supported. So there's no, there's no right and wrong way of doing things, but there are better ways of doing things than others. So I do think it's very important to choose, be, to, be, to be very selective about your set and setting and to do things in ways that are going to be with people that you can trust and rely on and have a sense of stability. But I do think overall, it's a very much a net positive. And I don't want to say people should run out and do these things as quickly as possible. But I do think it's helping to, I do think it's helping to heal the world, the world that people are being introduced to these at this specific time. I, I want to ask if you don't mind sharing something of, of your experience, you know, because what I'm wondering is, were you afraid or are you anytime that you use it? I have, based on just what little I've read, and I have admittedly quite a bit of ignorance about this, which means there's room for fear. There's room for ego and, oh, what would happen? You know, what, what might I reveal not only within myself, but to others? There's just this weird ignorance oriented fear on my part about trying in a ceremony. And I just wonder if you ever felt that or if you still do and what you see as the benefits based on your experience. Yeah, I'm always afraid every time. <laughs> because I mean, not not in a not in a real scared sense, but you are you're going to lose the ego is going to lose control. That's the thing. And the the ego does not want to lose control. <laughs> so no matter how many times you've you've done stuff like this, the ego still does not want to lose control. So I think I think it's healthy to not not be afraid, but to do it with a certain amount of reverence and seriousness because it's it is it is it is a you know a pretty big experience. And yeah, I mean I think what Ultimately, you know what's happening is you're you're giving a you're, you're given a bit of a tour of your own subconscious. So everyone's experience is very, 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 very different because we're all in different places. I am blessed and privileged to not have a lot of deep traumas that I need to work on. 
and not everyone can say that. So my experiences have been largely positive. There, there's always moments of being uncomfortable and, you know, you, you're, you're faced with certain, you know, demons, or maybe they're just tricksters on the path that encounter that you encounter and that you, you have to kind of wrestle with. But again, I'm privileged to say that my de- my my personal demons are not as daunting and powerful as other people's. So I have had experiences where I faced my own shadow and darkness and the darkness of the world, the darkness of my family lineage, etc. But they've been relatively minor. And then you know you get past them, and then that then you're kind of like ultimately you get to a beautiful place where everything kind of unfolds into a sense of oneness and beauty for me. If, if, if you're more predisposed to things like paranoia or, you know, you, you have a lot of deep trauma from your childhood or you're in a really bad relationship, you're going to have an experience that is a, a a reflection of where you are. So, you might have a harder time, but even the people that have really hard times, they learn the biggest lessons. So even if you have a lot of trauma, doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing this. It just means that you should be more prepared and, you know, know that it might not be totally sunny and fun, but you're probably going to learn bigger lessons because you've got a lot to sort through um, in those shadows. Yeah. It's not just a cool story to fly down to Peru and do this thing because you've heard other people doing it. There's real stuff going on. Certainly. (laughs) Certainly. Okay. We're going to switch gears here. You are a meme artist and well, I'd, I'd like, you know, I'll let you describe what that is. What is a meme? What does it mean to be a meme artist? for those listening who might not totally be clear on what that is. Yeah. Well, I think most people know like what a, what a meme is just in sense of like a meme is right now, a meme is like a, an internet graphic with words and an image that is making some kind of a point, or maybe it's not making a point. It's just kind of like a combination of words and graphics that express whatever the creator wants to express. It could be sarcasm. It could be absurdity. It could be um, poking fun at politics. A meme can be used to express any number of things, but essentially it is a, it is a format of an image that is used on the internet. And the name meme inherently means kind of the spreading of something or, or, or something going viral. It comes from the term memetic, which was coined by the social psychologist Richard Dawkins. And it is kind of the intellectual equivalent of a, of a gene in, in biology. And the way a gene can replicate and spread within a biological system, a meme is an idea that can spread. So that's why memes are things that go viral because you are expressing an intellectual concept that has some legs. So 
we've all, if you're on social media, you've seen memes and like, but that's kind of like the background of what they are. That's great. I I did not know that. So that's, I love that you went there and that you, that you know it. So for me, memes are just an, I think that they're, uh, the, um, they, they might be the, the, the most prevalent art form of our times um, and the most potent and powerful art form of our times. And I never used to think that, like you think, oh, a meme is just something online, right? It's not an art form, but I think it is. And uh, it's like people used to, in the, in the Renaissance, people would create these big paintings that had all of this hidden meaning. And there's all these, you know, f- philosophical, you know, you, 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 you could read a book on the, the, the subtle references in Renaissance art and all the ideas they're trying to express through art. And I don't see memes as being too different from that. You know, obviously we're using the tools at our disposal. And right now the tools at, at our disposal are social media and, um, you know, apps that create you know, apps where you can layer text over images and we're all, we're on our phones and we're just always in, interacting in that world. So spending a uh, months making a painting that can hang up on a wall is just not nearly as impactful as what you can do on your iPhone using a little app and Instagram because you can create an image that has some kind of a meaning that connects with people could be funny it could be not funny and then suddenly that can be go viral and seen by millions of people so i think that we're going to look back at this stage in the internet's evolution and we're going to have books history history books on on memes you know and 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 i don't i don't think we fully dawned that we're living in the the age of memes as an art form. Um, but I think that's where we are. Yeah. I think for a lot of us, and I mean, I think you and I are of comparable age to whatever, you know, extent the age thing matters, but there's just not all of us paying the same level of attention to what's happening on social media and looking at these ideas as well, having the substance that you just described, you know, as opposed to just some totally, um, whimsical, fun, funny. Oh yeah, I see that. I get the point. That's great. Um, so I appreciate your sharing the substance and depth that you see that is there in the way, you know, that, that you're creating with that. I have read from you and maybe heard, uh, on other podcasts possibly, but you describe having a message that meme artistry, your poetry, all of these things are related for the message and purpose you feel like you have in your life and what it is you're doing here as a writer, as a creator. Do you have, do you feel like a firm grasp on what your purpose, what your message might be, what it is you're trying to do through all of this creative work? Not really, because I think my, I mean, I'm more interested in I guess like things like format and technique than I am like message, meaning I, I want to like, I want to create, I want to like help develop the meme format as an art form. Like I want to make memes that um, stand the test of time, like memes that are 
people might look back on and be like, oh, cool. Like that's a, that's, that's a time capsule of that particular time or, or else there's like, there's an enduring message to that meme that is still relevant in 50 years. So I'm interested in the technique and the format of the me of the of a meme and also in poetry like what is the role of poetry in 2021 and how can I write poetry that is still captivating and relevant and then what is there some kind of an intersection or overlapping of poetry and memes where when does a meme become a poem or when does a poem become a meme and just playing around with that, that creative sandbox. So that's, so when I'm making stuff, that's kind of my, where my head's at. I'm not thinking about like a, like a message I have for the world because that doesn't usually come from me. Like I I said that I'm usually like, for me, creativity is a form of channeling. So I just kind of open myself up to, I mean, I, I must have, I think I probably have like a People talk about spirit guides, stuff like that. I don't know a lot about that kind of stuff, but I think I'm working with someone or something that's kind of using me as a vessel to channel. And whether that's my higher self, maybe that's uh, you know some some muse. But I'm kind of collaborating, I think, with some with something beyond myself. And whatever they want me to put out in terms of message, I, I kind of try to do. So I'm, I'm more interested in the execution and the technique than trying than having anything particular to say. I love the word vessel and the idea of what you're talking about. A word I often use is conduit, but the central, a, a central sort of thread through all of this work, however, relates to all the spirituality and things that we're talking about. And this, this sort of understanding, I think of yourself higher self, the world, you know, the human condition, human experience, whatever, that is what, that's the area within which you work. That's what you post for memes and those things. That's where we, you know, it has to do with ego and higher self. So somewhere in there, I I hear what you're saying about message, but somewhere in there, I just want to clarify for people who aren't, are not yet familiar with your work, that that's why we've spent this time talking about all of that is that that is the lane with which you are thinking and creating and sharing. Yeah, I would say uh, a common thread is just the idea of letting go of the comfortable known to make space for a greater and more beautiful unknown. Beautiful, yeah. And and trying to do that individually so we can do it as a society. Because I think right now we're we're looking at a world that is in it's it's really in a it's 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 dying in so many ways, you know whether the whether it's the economy or people's health or people's people's rights, people's sense of trust for each other and for their governments, it's all in a place of decay. So we can only. It, it's going to take like a massive transformation and a lot of like, le- we need to leave that old world behind and create something that is not yet seen. And that takes a leap of faith in every single individual to leave behind their own comfortable knowns and to jump into something that is as yet uh, unseen, but has the potential to be much greater than what we're leaving behind. I'm going to wrap this up with a question 
about a new book that I think you have coming later this year that contains some of these things, the poetry and meme art that you create. So, and that's, that's through thought catalog, right? That's right. Um, so, so what's the timing on that? And, and just what, if there's a way to sort of give an umbrella view, I guess, of what all is, is in there without asking for the specifics, but you know, what, what's going to be in this book? Yeah. Uh, the timing is, I don't know yet, but the book is done. And it basically just needs to go through the design process and the kind of like printing and distribution process, which should only take a couple months. So I I wouldn't be surprised if we have a release date towards the end of summer. Okay. And as far as I know, I'm pretty sure it's the first book of poetry and memes together as one idea. So essentially, um, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of poems. And when I say poems, I don't mean boring, fluffy <laughs> things. I, I, I mean poems that are <laughs> hopefully exciting, captivating, funny, and reveal little pieces of truth. I want it to be very fun book to read that will hopefully make people laugh um, a few times. So there are longer poems in that vein. And there are also like tons of little illustrations that I do, little comics that I do, um, other memes that I do, different quotes and like little snippets of things. So it's a very engaging book in the sense that you can flip through it and there's going to be a lot of variety and a lot of visual stimulation. And it's going to be a a very engaging, fun book of both poetry and memes. And um, I think the title sums up, I think the, what the book is all about, which is how to laugh in ironic amusement during your existential crisis. (laughs) And it's really, it was written primarily in 2020 when the world was upside down and it still is upside down in so many ways. And it really is a way of grappling with the world that we're living in now and shedding some light on it and adding some humor and hopefully painting a vision of a better world that can come out of this. I look forward to seeing it, James. I look forward to reading it, to laughing with it. And I'll uh, think of this conversation when I do. Thanks so much for joining me, for talking with me about all of this stuff, for getting into the deep waters with me and sharing so, so openly. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. And thanks for having me on. And, and thanks for all the great questions. Thanks for listening to my conversation with the poet, and meme artist and author, James McRae. You can learn more about James in the show notes published on the website at humanity.com, where I've also published a show transcript. You also can connect with James through his website, jamesmcrae.com. That's james, M-C-C-R-A-E.com. And on Instagram at words are vibrations. I hope you've heard something or many things in this conversation today that really shined light on things of use and meaning to you. And if so, spread the word and the love. 
because together we can shape a kind, caring, and creative world, the one that we all want. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thanks for being here.